0: Hello and welcome to Altamar. I'm Peter Schechter.
1: And I'm Mooney Jensen, here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do every two weeks. And just when we were starting to relax and put the months of COVID lockdowns behind us, here comes monkeypox to add to our list of anxiety-producing news. And today we will, in Altamar style, talk mostly about the global politics of this very contagious virus and how it may affect our interconnected world.
0: Okay, so Moody, we know the facts. Monkeypox is transmitted through animals, and it was first identified in the 1970s in the Congo, a few years after smallpox was eradicated, That it was present in Africa, and that it's now spread to non-endemic countries. We have been informed of only the basics. It is transmitted through close contact, but it is not a sexually transmitted disease, and manifests as skin rashes and high fever. That most cases are among gay and bisexual men, but increasingly all. Also, in other demographics, it is largely not deadly, but extremely painful and can result in terrible complications. And the vaccine is only about 85% effective. That's it. That's all really that we know. Information from health institutions around the world is uneven, and the responsibility has fallen largely on the global media to report on the spread, vaccine availability, and access to care.
1: So, that's a good fact sheet. I'll add a little bit. Worldwide, the CDC estimated that over 30,000 cases have been identified in 89 countries. WHO's calculations are always slightly smaller, many of which had not historically reported monkeypox. So unsurprisingly, the CDC has quickly declared monkeypox a national emergency, Again, the WHO held back before doing so for a few weeks, but the WHO is again accused of delaying the declaration of an emergency, remember, that happened with COVID. But it just isn't clear if the international medical community is really on top of the issue or if it isn't. And meanwhile, the controversy around the lack of information around stopping transmission and vulnerable populations is growing every day. The LGBTQ community feels targeted with echoes of the AIDS era homophobia. Some African-Americans believe the name is racist and there's been some vigilante behavior, even even here in DC. So as numbers grow, so does the social upheaval that it's really starting to create.
0: When it just often just seems like we're seeing something like it's déjà vu, it's all over again. And as summer wraps up and schools and universities around the world are reporting cases, concerns rise on whether governments everywhere are downplaying the virus. This has led to misinformation and probably more contagion, but mostly it's delayed a coordinated response, which becomes more and more complicated every day as the spread continues. So critics remind us that the successful eradication of smallpox in only back in 1968 required a coherent global international campaign. And it's pretty obvious that today's global politics make it impossible for the world's democracies to organize a global anything at all. Not even a sport event, let alone a coordinated health campaign. A shameful truth in a world where scientific knowledge has expanded so much. On the other side, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia and China's dictatorial expansionism have squandered resources into war and defense. Socially advanced Europe seems to have abandoned its efforts to fulfill human need in exchange for internal politicking. Let's hear from Thea on the prejudices and anti-LGBTQ lobbying that's going on across the world.
2: This is Teya where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. So today I want to talk about the stigma around this growing crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic saw vaccine nationalism, contradictory official guidance and marginalized groups forced to advocate for themselves while the early days of the HIV crisis were colored by viral and homophobia, stigmatization, and unequal access to treatments. And today, history seems to be repeating itself. Anti-LGBTQ sentiments are on the rise, and public health officials are making the same mistakes they made during the HIV-AIDS pandemic. First, the near exclusive emphasis on gay men regarding HIV-AIDS set up the public health response for failure in two main respects. First, it created stigma, shame, and blame on gay men. And second is it left other groups, especially minority groups, with a false sense of security. Women also contracted HIV from bisexual partners or partners who used intravenous drugs. And even the initial definition of AIDS was shaped by how the disease presented itself in men locking out women of critical government benefits because they didn't meet the quote unquote criteria of having AIDS. An HIV infected man qualified for disability while an HIV infected woman with cervical cancer, for example, did not. And the definition was finally changed in 1993 to include women, but that was almost 12 years into the pandemic. And the CDC says monkeypox is transmitted primarily to bodily fluids, close skin-to-skin contact, when a blister-like sore is present, which includes cuddling, kissing, and sexual intercourse, but also coming in contact with clothes, bed linens, and towels of an infected person. So that's not just limited to intimacy between men. And as a result, public health officials warn that the virus could begin spreading more broadly. So we know from history how the medical community's emphasis on the health of gay men made it easier for the general public to believe that a scary disease was someone else's problem. And I already see it happening now. People want to believe that it is someone else's disease until it happens to them. And the sad truth is that while humans discriminate against people, viruses do not. So as always, I'd love to hear what you think. Join the conversation by tweeting at Altamore Podcasts.
0: Muni, we spoke a few minutes ago about how serious international media has become the best explainer of monkeypox, dispelling myths and explaining governments as credible sources. Today, our guest is a leading global health correspondent, a representative of the media who really knows. Nareet Eisenman is a national public radio correspondent for global health and development based in Washington, D.C. She regularly travels across the globe to report on disease outbreaks, social and economic challenges, and innovative efforts to overcome them. Her reports can be heard on NPR news programs, such as Morning Edition and All Things Considered. She joined NPR in the spring of 2014 after 13 years as a national and international reporter for the Washington Post. In her current role, Nourit has helped NPR's award-winning coverage of the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. She reported on the ground from Liberia as the epidemic reached its peak there in 2014, and from Sierra Leone as the caseloads began breaking records in the following months. In April 2015, this work was honored with a George Foster Peabody Award, among the most prestigious programs in recognizing excellence in broadcast journalism. And of course, last, Nareet is a dear friend. Welcome back, Nareet. It's such a pleasure to have you again on Altamar. Great to be on. So give us an overview. I mean, Mooney and I tried to sort of quickly brief the readers on what we knew, but, you know, what we know is very little. And so what's the global situation regarding the monkeypox virus?
3: Okay. Globally, we're at about 32,000 cases in 89 countries. Virtually all of the cases are in countries that have not historically reported monkeypox. And the outbreak is largest in the U.S. with nearly 10,000 cases followed by Spain with about 5,000. Then you have Germany, France, the UK, and Brazil with from 3,000 down to 2,000 cases each. Beyond that, with a few exceptions like Peru, it's still mostly in European countries in the largest numbers. And for now, this outbreak is spreading mostly among gay and queer people, primarily men who have sex with men.
0: And what are some of the challenges that exist in creating a global response? And has the has WHO done the right thing to call this a global health emergency? How bumpy is the road here? Are we again looking at what happened during COVID, which is there's disagreements and people don't move fast enough and it's difficult to create a, a coordinated response? Well,
3: you know, something interesting about that declaration was that I think for the first time, Dr. Tedros, the head of the WHO, actually broke with his advisory committee in declaring it a public health emergency of international concern. And, you know, one of the issues around this is that it's not technically a pandemic at the moment, but there are a lot of challenges and there are challenges for which global coordination probably would be really helpful. And I think we can talk in more detail about these challenges, but they're sort of in three buckets. There's just like practical vaccine supply, then there's the challenge that, you know, given that the population that is most affected is one that's often persecuted, marginalized, will governments show them the care they deserve? And, and then lastly, how does the public messaging avoid stigmatizing men who have sex with men and avoid making them targets while still giving clarity that's really needed on what's going on so that people can protect themselves?
1: So let's talk about vaccines for a minute. And there's been a lot of controversy about the dosage, about giving people a fifth of what the original uh, dosage was recommending. Are there enough vaccines around for those who want or need them? And how is the situation, again, PTSD from COVID, between producer countries and countries with access or not to vaccinations?
3: There's certainly some parallels here. I mean, in the short term, you know, there is a real shortage. And then there's some really open questions about what happens in the, you know, near to medium to long term. Part of the issue is that even though technically there are three vaccines that are talked about as, as useful here, there's really only one game in town, which is the genius vaccine uh, that's produced by this Danish company, Bavarian Nordic, and I spoke with them this week and they said that they can produce 30 to 40 million doses annually. But I will say that based on how much they have apparently delivered to date, I have also spoken with analysts that question whether that is going to really be possible. And so then the question becomes, well, even if we take them at their word, they can make 30 to 40 million annually. You know, How much is actually going to be needed? And One way to look at that is to say, all right, well, what about like the the most vulnerable men who have sex with men with multiple partners? Really hard to know how many people like that there are in the world. But one estimate I've seen using sort of proxy stats is maybe 18 million people worldwide. So you can see how if what this company can produce uh, is significantly less than what they're saying, that's not going to be enough. And of course, it could spread You know, further and more populations need to be vaccinated, healthcare workers, the extreme worst case scenario, children, even these rosy scenarios can quickly fall apart. And then I think it's worth talking about just in the short term, you know, right now, just what a shortage there is. I'm happy to go into more detail about that. And then also to the extent that there have been contracts that are publicly disclosed, it does seem to be once again really dominated by a handful of wealthy countries led by the US.
1: So just by listening to your answer, I I, can, I have to follow up about what this will create for society and, and whether this is going to create a new wave of nationalism will accentuate homophobia and racism around the world. And is there any, I mean, any way to avoid history repeating itself? And it's monkeypox becoming part of the global political divide. And I would just add, is there any way to avoid that?
3: You know, I think uh, the main thing is just to really be aware uh, and to shine a light as much as possible on both the inequities, which is something that has happened before and on, you know, how is the supply being deployed? And, you know, is this rational? Does it, does it match, you know, what, what the world needs? But then this added twist, you know, that is different than COVID. And I will say one thing that's at least for now, you know, that that is different with COVID is the numbers are significantly smaller, right? The number of people that are affected. So let's hope that that stays the case and there's reason to think it will. But that said, there's an additional twist that we didn't have with COVID, which has this you know the, all this stigmatization of uh, of gay and queer communities and and you know there's dozens of countries around the world where you know it's, it's even criminalized uh, to be homosexual so this is a whole other aspect of it and i think that you know to your question of like how does the worst case scenario get avoided i mean it, it just seems like china spotlight china spotlight china spotlight you know and uh, and there's definitely awareness of this sensitive sensitivity but you know, the more the better.
2: And Noreith, in my segment earlier, I talked about the stigma on this growing crisis. And so my question is, you know, some experts are saying that it's only a matter of time until monkeypox begins spreading beyond men who have sex with men, which now accounts for 99% of those infected. What do we know about that spread so far?
3: So it's hard to know for sure. I, I, you know, I hesitate, as you know, from previous interviews on this show, I, I hesitate to, to crystal ball things too much, but you know, here's the thing. It, it, this is not classified as a sexually transmitted disease because it, you know, there's various ways that it's transmitted, but it does seem like sex and particularly anal sex is the much more effective way to spread it than other means. And so once it entered sexual networks of men who have sex with men, it was really able to gain this current foothold. What happens, you know, as cases continue to balloon upwards, more and more cases in the fall, it's possible that monkeypox will become more of an issue, let's say, on college campuses as students return. There's also some concern that there could be cases, more cases among children, repeated contact with saliva among young children. So the virus might start to spread at different rates within different demographics. So it's not it's not a given, but it's definitely a concern. You know, the more a virus starts to spread, the more people, uh, you know, it, it gets to be in, in the bodies of uh, the more it can adapt and just the more opportunities it has. So that's definitely a concern.
0: Given all these concerns, is there a way to create some coherent public messaging around monkeypox? If we compare it to COVID, there seems to be, you know, more certainty about the source, more clarity about transmission and symptoms and cure. And it it just, you know, as we research this, it's it's amazing how little information there is. And it's seemingly very unclear. And, you know, it's very initial.
3: I think... That on the one hand, there is a huge advantage over COVID, and it's worth you know in in the midst of all the bad news, holding on to some pieces of good news, right? Which is that there is a lot more that's known about it. There are still some some big questions, you know. For example, not fully understood how much is it transmitted in semen, exactly how well do vaccines work? I mean, there's still a fair amount of provisional information that that definitely more research is needed. But that said you know there is there is a, an understanding and it's not that difficult in theory to prevent compared to you know covid which would appear to be much more infectious right especially since the omicron variants emerged much much more hard to keep that genie in the bottle so i think that to this question i mean you know keeping it simple and also treading this line between avoiding stigmatizing groups but also not being squeamish about talking about the forms of sexual transmission because people need to know this information. And it's important for everyone to just act like grown-ups <laughs> and and just state the facts.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about vaccine hesitancy and anti-vaxxers. It was a big problem in the COVID years. Is it a problem with monkeypox and how do we avoid the hesitancy, particularly in religious countries where homophobia is a large and rampant issue?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, I haven't yet seen, because the vaccine is in short supply right now, you know, the big the big issue is people clamoring for it, you know, um, and dismayed at the difficulty of getting it. So we haven't yet reached that point where we know exactly to what extent there'll be hesitancy and what form does it take. But I do think there's this fascinating question, which is, you know, if, let's say there is starts to become enough vaccine available, given how many countries criminalize homosexuality, if the idea is to really target men who have sex with men, how do you do that in a country where that's literally illegal you know and I actually put that to some people who really focus on on that kind of issue particularly in uh, in countries where there's that criminality problem and one model that that people are thinking of is HIV/AIDS, which of course doesn't exclusively affect gay and queer communities, but you know that was part of it. And um, they stressed the importance of the U.S. role with PEPFAR and PEPFAR's presence in a lot of these countries as a, a way to, you know, have a robust response, encourage governments, sort of fill in gaps uh, in serving communities that the that the government might not be as inclined to focus on. So maybe looking to some of those prior models of what worked is an avenue people are talking about.
1: Let's talk about the WHO. It's only as good as the reporting that it receives from countries. And we have been already made aware of of the uneven reporting on on other issues, including COVID. What is the the status of monkeypox reporting and vaccination reporting and kind of a unified vaccination policy is, is we are living through this new disease in the middle of a very fractured global environment. How is that affecting everything?
3: Absolutely. It is so notable as a reporter on this just how challenging it is to get really... Basic information. And it's a whole host of issues. You know, the first is like with the vaccine, right? In general, both the pharmaceutical industry and countries are extremely guarded about what they want to release, about their contracts, about their supply, about their stockpiles. Add to it that the vaccine in question, you know, is also. Uh, used against smallpox, so there's sort of national security issues for countries. So, so it's hard to extract a full picture. And WHO, you know, when you when you ask WHO for certain facts, like you know who is doing vaccination and who has what, they also don't seem to have, at least in terms of what they'll disclose, you know, to a reporter like myself, they don't seem to have a sort of dashboard with all the kind of information that you would consider just a baseline of necessary for for monitoring what's happening. So I think the, you know, the COVID pandemic underscored the need for more transparency. And unfortunately, this is just reminding us that that issue has not been fully solved.
0: I didn't know something that Nurit just said, which was that there's a national security issue because the vaccines are the same for smallpox. Yeah. Can you just jump in that a little bit?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot the vaccines in question were really developed and stockpiled to the extent that they were stockpiled with an eye towards national security. You know, what if they were, even though smallpox has been eradicated, there's always this fear that there were a few stores still and that it could be used as a bioweapon or a lab accident. And of course, it's such a deadly disease uh, and so transmissible. There's a real fear of, you know, and and knowing how, you know, countries kind of guard that as a secret, you know, how much exactly how much do they have? And what do they have? I mean, that's, you know, that's sort of considered a national security issue. It's also come up, you know, one of the the sort of preliminary reporting that I've started to do is, okay, what what are possibilities for taking the technology of the existing vaccines and doing tech transfers to other countries that could then produce more supply, right? If, if there really does become a, a choke point in terms of what variant Nordic can produce and, and other vaccines that emerge, is working on one, for example, you know. And it becomes even more complicated because to the extent that it uses, you know, it involves smallpox and knowledge about smallpox. That is something that people get nervous about, you know, uh, sharing that information too widely. So it's like this extra twist on an already complicated situation.
1: So are the CDC and the CDCs from around the world working with WHO? There's a lot of rumors that they're not.
3: I mean, I don't. I can't speak to exactly what level of coordination is happening. I will say that for example there is talk of doing a experiment, not an experiment, but essentially potentially having the US provide vaccine in the D- in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the DRC as you know and and studying it which is crucial, right, to see like because one of the questions with the genius vaccine is we have some information to think it it's effective against monkeypox but you know, not a huge amount. And, and it's it's important to study this more. And when I was speaking to the, the WHO about it, I mean, they did not have up to date information about exactly what was going to happen. They were like, that's being done by the US. We were, you know, waiting to hear from them. So how much internally is being coordinated? I I can't speak to, but I can tell you that.
1: So Nerth, we've learned about monkeypox mostly through the media, and I commend the work that that you and your colleagues have have done in trying to explain, and trying to be direct, and trying to be, you know, respectful. And it seems like you're taking kind of the space of these organizations that are either, you know, still not prepared to counter this, or at least to to give good public information, but also. That there might be some paranoia about the economic impact that uh, that monkeypox could um, could create, or the stigma, and so there's seems to be a, an issue of transparency. Are journalists working together in trying to piece this information?
3: I mean, I think it's a collective project in the sense that you know journalists have our have a mission. You know, we have a really clear mission in situations like this. Do I coordinate with people at other outlets? You know, no, but we're definitely joined by a, by a collective mission of just trying to understand, you know, what is known and convey that as effectively and sensitively as we can, you know.
2: And we, you
3: know, you were talking about some lessons we learned from COVID and, and
2: sort of doing a little better in terms of coordination. It sounds like it's pretty inevitable we will see future pandemics. Um on, you know, multiple levels, what are some of the lessons that we can learn from from this pandemic and the previous pandemic and what can we do better?
3: So, you know, on top of the coordination issues that we already discussed and transparency issues, I think for me, one takeaway is just the importance of having imagination. And, you know, when you see a tiny, cloud on the horizon of a sunny day, having the imagination to say, even though it's sunny right now, <laughs> I could picture this turning into something really, <laughs> a really bad storm. And I'm going to get my raincoat out now. And it it requires, it requires requires two things. It requires imagination to think of the worst and take the worst case seriously. And it requires the stomach to know that you might you know, say the sky is falling and be wrong. <laughs> and, uh, and it's worth it, you know, I mean, so you, you can't, you don't want to jump to the worst conclusion every single time. But certainly, what seems to be the case with monkeypox, you know, we have not just myself, but colleagues have reported early warning signs, you know, that already went unheeded. And it's, it's, again, it's part of this just reluctance to believe the worst. It might, maybe it's a human inclination that we have to struggle against and just keep remembering and, and hopefully not have to learn this lesson over and over again.
0: Noreet Eisenman, thank you so much for joining us on Altamart today.
3: It was a pleasure. I'm struck with the lack
1: of a learning curve on the part of these organizations. They, we just lived through and are living through um, the, the whole COVID process. It seems like it's all the same, the just the, the you know, kind of the misinformation, the lack of coordination between the local and the organization, the WHO. I just wonder if the WHO is the one that's not kind of stepping up. It's really, it's, it's easy to point fingers, but there's definitely more information about this than there ever was about COVID and the confusion is the same.
2: Right. I mean, what's up with the lack of a PR campaign on behalf of the WHO, right? I mean, it's the media who's doing all the educating. I find that strange. Then second is the stigma around this particular crisis with the, the gay community, which um, is very problematic. And then third is, like you said, I, I feel that, you know, there is no learning curve. And what are we learning for future pandemics? I mean, experts are saying, you know, pandemics, whether respiratory or po- or smallpox, like are inevitable, you know, what are the lessons that we're learning? And, you know, to Nourit's point, it's at least we have to be, you know, prepared to act, I guess, you know, that's one thing. But uh, that's my question is, what are we doing about it?
0: So usually, I love to disagree with one of you or both of you in this segment, but I don't, I agree. But I let me just switch. I didn't know about the connection to smallpox that Nourit has brought up and sort of the national security implications the fixation on bio warfare and that makes people not wanna talk about the vaccine. The fact that sort of because of smallpox's eradication, the smallpox vaccine is no longer given and therefore people may not have immunity. So I, I think this this connection provides monkeypox with this sort of fascinating, uh, and I just wonder how much of the lack of information that you both have pointed out is really due to the fact that people don't want to talk about it because of the connection with Smartbox. Anyway, I'm going to take the last word on that and just remind everybody that you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also sign up for our bi-weekly free newsletter for an analysis of global trends. We'll see you next time.